Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And we are recording with the one and only Mr. Howard <laughs> Bloom, my buddy, my pal, on Thursday, June 22nd. 2023 at 6.08 p.m. Eastern Time, talking about who killed Omnology. I believe our last talk, we talked about, um, you know, censored scientists and uh, really the iron grip that ego can have on the what we strive for to be the objective field of science. Um, but Howard's been on here several times, several, I think probably 10, 15 times. You've passed the several mark. You've been on here 10, 15 times before. We've covered, <laughs> I think, all of your books. And I think my favorite will probably always be global brain um i love all of them but global brain just does something for me um but you were just saying before we started recording um that you've been 95 percent finished with your new book for the last six months and i've never been a writer but as someone that has done graphic design i do i do have an ink i do understand the uh the, the you're at the finish line and uh i think for me at least i never uh I always liked the quote that no artistic piece is ever finished. It is simply uh, you make peace with abandoning it, abandoning it. And I think that's right. mu- probably much more accurate. But, Howard, tell me about where you are in the last, not, last okay, 5%. So the, the, the next book, which probably won't be out for a year, yeah, is called uh, The Case of the Sexual Cosmos. Everything you know about nature is wrong. Yeah. And I thought I was only 95%. Or that it was 95% finished, that I only had 5% to go. And then a month ago, because the villain in this book is the concept of entropy, the concept of heat death, the concept that everything tends toward randomness, um, that everything tends toward becoming useless. A useless chaos is the idea behind entropy. And in science, the second law of thermodynamics, the first two laws of thermodynamics are of almost religious significance in science. If you don't ascribe to those, you're dead meat in science. Yeah. You're not a part of the scientific community. And the first uh, rule of thermodynamics is that um, the, the amount of matter in the universe or the amount of energy in the universe stays the same, period. Um, the second is, all, uh, is um, the entropy in the universe is on a constant increase. Entropy is disorder. Entropy is what happens when you're running a steam engine. And entropy is the waste heat that comes out of the exhaust. And it's no longer useful, at least according to the entropists, it's no longer useful for work. And so in 1850, William Thompson, who 16 years later would be knighted by Queen Victoria as Lord Kelvin. So William Thompson wrote a paper on the universal dissipation of heat. The idea that Heat in the universe is a motive force, moves things. Um, and that um, heat was constantly spreading out, becoming random. And that eventually the universe would do exactly what heat is doing. It would spread out and become random. And thus the universe would end in a random soup of, of molecules. Uh, um, and in 1965, a guy named Rudolf Clausius came along and said uh, that uh, the, the uh, amount of entropy in the universe is constantly on the increase. Um, and then in 19 or in 1875, again, a guy named Ludwig Boltzmann came along and said, well, here's why the second law is true. Here's why all things tend toward entropy, that it's all going to be entropy and heat death in the end. Because the number of states in which the universe can be ordered enough to make a sun, an earth, a Tommy Kerrigan, and a Howard Bloom is infinitesimally small. But the number of ways that the universe could be ordered so that there is no Tommy Kerrigan, is no Howard Bloom, is no sun, and is no earth is almost infinite. Hmm. And the most probable thing is always what happens. So inevitably, Howard and Tommy and the earth and the sun are all going to disappear in this formless soup. Heat death. Of heat death. Right. So I thought 
okay, I've referred to it twice in the book. At least I owe you two paragraphs explaining how we got this bizarre concept. A little bit of the history of the thing. That's, so three, hold on, before, before that, that's kind of, that is a profound statement though, right? The number of, you know, way, the ways that, you know, you and I can be ordered together in this living universe of galaxies and stars and butterflies is infinitesimally small. Yep. And the number of ways that the the cookie could crumble, if you will, in which well, we that all the atoms that all the atoms you consist of could just become a random swirl is is near infinite. But there's the most probable thing is that which happens, which yes is us going away. But the fact that you and I are here, in a way, would have to imply that. On some plane, this was the most probable outcome. If the most probable thing always happens, then we're here. Right. At some point, we were the most probable outcome. The most probable thing, which means that the probability, the mathematical probability, the field called probability and statistics, um, that William Thompson and uh, Rudolf Clausius and Ludwig von Boltzmann were using, does not apply to this universe go on um because it says we are the least likely least probable things but as you just said if there is probability the most probable things that are, so those two here. sentences can't exist together yeah so there's something wrong with the math yeah and remember math is like any other tool of human beings and it evolves and when the folks who invented the old one stone tool uh, they could have said all kinds of things are impossible because they can't be done with the old one stone tool. And then um, 750,000 years later, somebody invented the Aculean um, stone tool. Uh, uh, a, uh, an old one, the old version, was just a, a lump with uh, uh, a side sheared off so that there would be something that was relatively sharp. The new stone axes that came along um, 750,000 years later, the Aculean stone axes were chipped on both sides so that they could form a blade, which is something humans had never had before. They had had to saw the hide off of the animals that they took down with this thing that was only chipped on one side and had a, a blade compared to everything else that had previously existed. It was a blade, but it was a very clumsy, poor cutting tool. Now with being able to um, to pair this thing on both sides. Um, you could have a sharp blade. What's more, um, roughly God knows how many years after that, another 750,000 years after that, people made a sudden discovery. Garbage is gold in disguise. In other words, the real deal, when you chip the two sides of an Acule or yes, an Aculean hand axe, um, is the chips the chips have all kinds of little very sharp flakes that are chipped on both sides and the flakes are even better at cutting than the hammer with the two stone sides math is like that okay um math was done uh, starting in the days of pythagoras and plato math was done with geometry and that remained the only form of math until approximately 1700. Um, and, and meanwhile, somebody had invented these things called equations. That was 1570. But nobody picked them up for roughly 130 years. And then those were picked up. So to, so to say that everything can be described by our equations is like saying everything can be done with the old one stone tool. Um, there will be new forms of math, and some of them are in use. Computers these days, instead of doing math, are based on the math, are doing simulations. That's a whole new way to calculate things. Um, and there will be other forms of math in the future. The problem is not the universe. The problem is not that the universe is breaking the second law of thermodynamics. The problem is when a scientific, every scientific proposition 
every scientific statement has got to be considered a hypothesis. Um, and if the hypothesis fails, then the proposition fails. It means the proposition is either not true or needs radical moderation. Yeah. And entropy, because entropy and the first law of thermodynamics have become a religion. You must chant them. You must adhere to them or you are not considered legitimate in science. They are like the rituals the, that a, uh, a fraternity uses yeah. before they let you in or that the Masons use before they let you in. So they have not been subject to the usual scrutiny. And when you scrutinize them, this is not a universe. Well, let's take an example. Let's just put an image in your mind. Remember when you were a kid and you had a slinky and you put it at the top of the stairs and you took the top end of it and bent it down and put it on the next stair down. Then you let it go. The slinky went all the way down the stairs, right? So that's the way entropists perceive the universe in a constant state of downward flow. But since you're a grown up these days and have your own cell phone, if you took uh, a video of the slinky going down the stairs and ran it in reverse, so it looked like the slinky was climbing from one stair to another, that's the picture, that's the metaphor that matches our universe. Going backwards? No, no, not going backwards, but the fact is that uh, in the first instant of the Big Bang, the first 10 to the minus 30 seconds, uh -huh. all of a sudden, you know, you've heard this from me before, um, quarks came as knots of time, space, and speed. Yeah. Um, and quarks were tremendously social. They needed to get together in groups of two or groups of three. And they got together, but there were there were gazillions of parks. Now, another thing that's taken for granted in science is um, randomness, which is directly related, of course, to probability and statistics. And if this were a random universe and it had just spat out a gazillion quarks, they would would have been a gazillion quarks and a gazillion different forms um, that could never relate to each other because their forms were so different. But no, the universe spits out gazillions of particles, but it only spits out 16 different kinds of particles. Only 16 different kinds, gazillions of identical copies of each. That is not randomness. That's Randomness is called, in scientific terms, stochasticity. One way or the other, there, there is no stochasticity at the beginning of the universe. There is no randomness at the beginning of the universe. There is radical uniformity. Have... Have you read Carlo Rovelli's On the Order of Time? Uh no, no. One one of my one of my good friends is a is a math professor. I think he lives in Hawaii. And that this is years ago and that but that book bent I like to think that I'm somewhat intelligent. That book bent my mind and made me feel like an idiot. But the one takeaway I got from it is the only way we can tell the direction of time is the flow it's of the heat. Well, is the flow of heat. Right. Because like you were saying that's, about the slinky. That's an arrogant old idea. Okay. Fucked up idea. All right. Left over from the anthropists. All right. Because the anthropists, these guys functioning from 1850 to 1875, told us that this explains the arrow of time. Okay. That so the the, first why is it fucked up? Uh, why is it fucked up? Because it doesn't match this universe. It's derived from... Um, heating an iron bar on one end mm -hmm. and then watching as the heat diffuses yeah. from the one end that's super hot to the cold end until the whole bar becomes it's a uniform temperature. Yeah. Um, and using that is based on using the metaphor of the steam engine. Okay. Now, I will grant you, steam engines were a hot property yeah. in 1850, a very hot property in 1850. William Thompson, Lord Kelvin's brother, older brother, one year older than he was, um, was a theoretician like William Thompson was and a mathematician, but he was a steamship engineer. And Glasgow, where they were both growing up, produced one new steamship a week. Um, and steamships big enough to cross the Atlantic in three weeks. Previously, it had taken four months or more to cross the Atlantic and to carry 400 passengers. 
So his brother, William Thompson's brother, Lord Kelvin's brother, was always on the lookout for new ways to make steam engines more efficient so that steam ships would have to carry less coal in order to get across the Atlantic. Well, yeah, that's a very big problem in 1850. Um, but is the universe a steam engine? That's what the entropists turned the universe into. Worse than that, they turned the universe into a metal bar heated at one end. Mm. Because another way of phrasing the first law of thermodynamics, which is that uh, matter is never increased or decreased, in the, or actually its energy has never increased or decreased in the universe, is that heat always flows from the hot end of things to the cold end and never in reverse. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. You know, it's it's very interesting to base a whole science on it. What do you get out of that science? Well, there had been this idea since the 1600s derived from Democritus and Lucretius of atoms. And in the 1600s, natural philosophers, which is what scientists were called, began to hypothesize about atoms again and about something they called molecules. And the theory um, in, in the early 1800s, the theory was that matter was, um, or heat was a particle, that it was a substance. Um, and that when you heat one end of your bar of iron, what happens is these particles called caloric migrate from the hot end over to the cold end and eventually equalize the heat on the entire bar. Made sense. Um, but the thermodynamicists managed to prove that heat is not a substance. Heat is a motion. That heat is the motion of atoms and molecules. So they really nailed this idea of atoms and molecules very firmly into the body of science. Mm. That was a gift. They produced gifts, but they were dead wrong about the universe. The universe is not an iron bar. Um, and the universe does really bizarre things. Like there's another, uh, uh, Pierre-Louis de Maupertuis, um, around 1765, um, came up with the formulation that nature always takes the shortest path. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? You and I are products of the sexual process. If you took one, you just take one of your genomes and stretch it out in front of you to its full length, it's six feet long but it's so thin you can't see it and because you have 10 trillion cells there are 10 trillion of these genomes in you which means there are enough there are enough genomes in you to stretch the distance from here to the sun and back 28 times <laughs> just six, in you six feet 60 trillion feet yeah I 600 guess. trillion feet oh, no no um, how many cells 600 trillion, well, it's 100 trillion cells, so it's 600 tr oh, trillion 600 feet. 600 trillion feet, okay. Divided by 1,000 would be 600 billion. Divided by 5 would be 12 billion. 12 billion, yeah. God. <laughs> Sorry, it's go on. pretty substantial distance. Wow. Okay, oh, yeah. now, now one day you are going to mate for the purposes of procreation. Mm -hmm. And what will happen? Your intricately assembled gene where nothing is allowed to be out of place. The gene is very good at policing itself so that it functions. It's a team. It's a team of 20,000 genes in a human being. Um, and those, if some genes get out of place, that's gonna fuck up the team. However, your sperm is gonna take a chance on fucking up your gene. Why? It's gonna go to the egg of the woman hopefully you love. Um, and then, the, and the two of them are going to do all kinds of crazy dances to swap genes in random places. And the process is so complex that even Mensa students have a hard time talking about meiosis and mitosis, which is what goes on before your sperm ever gets to the lady of your dreams. Yeah. No, I hate that shit um, in college. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's so complex that a hedge fund accountant can't keep track of it. And it's going to go through all of this in order to assemble another genome 
that if you stretch it out is six feet long, but a changed genome, a genome of a kind There's that never literally been seen before. has never existed in the universe. Never. Now, is that the shortest distance yeah. between two points? Is, is that a universe constantly breaking down in random disorder? No, and if it has to be the most probable thing, then our concept of probability is irreversibly fucked. Yes, you're right. Because that happens okay. every moment of every day in every cell of every person. An animal, yes. an insect. Right, right. So, 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 yeah, so is all of that incorrect? Or is it is it shocking that our concept of it is incorrect? Well, are you here? Yes. Uh, are you awake? Yes. Do you have something you call a mind and a consciousness? I'd like to think so. Science doesn't know what the hell a consciousness is. <laughs> That's how that's how old one stone tool yeah. science is right now. Yeah. Science yeah. also doesn't know what life is. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's a so pattern. Science has got a long way to go before it invents its next tool. Yeah. Its next stone tool. Its yeah. next form of mathematics. Yeah. Or something beyond mathematics. Um, one way or the other, the current scientific concepts, especially the idea of the second law of thermodynamics, that entropy and the develop is the word that uh is used. The, yeah, that, that entropy in the world is on a constant increase is wrong. And the idea of uh, Boltzmann, that you can apply Boltzmann probability burn, yeah. and statistics, is wrong. Um, and so the book is about some of this. But at any rate, so I wanted to give you two explanatory paragraphs just to place, to give you a sense of, historical color in thinking about entropy. And three weeks later, um, I started to write up what I had found. And when I finished writing it up, it was another 10,000 words. So when I say I'm 95% of the way through finishing the book, I'm not taking into account that there may be radical expansions of the book ahead of me. I'm hoping there are no more. I'm hoping this is the last one. And but I have when I finished, I had 192 little question marks, little areas that I had to fact check. And now I'm down to 101. And when I finish all that fact checking, I will be able to read the book from cover to cover again and see if it works. And then Lord help us if I realize something doesn't work and I go back to work. This is bending my mind, and I always have to remember. I always have to remind myself to to chug a Red Bull before talking to you, because I have to, to. I have to crank up the horsepower a couple extra percent. Right. What? Well, let me tell you another story that's directly related. Okay. So, meantime, for the last two years, there's been a Howard Bloom Institute. You mm -hmm. participated in mm -hmm. it for a few weeks, so you have a good idea of what it's all about. Mm -hmm. And our major project is establishing omnology mm -hmm. as a course in the college curriculum so that we can get the concept into science. And omnology is um, for those who aspire to omniscience. It's for people with multiple curiosities. Um, it's a field for the promiscuously curious. It's there so that when your dad sits you down in your sophomore year of college and uh, says, uh, now Tommy, you're interested in art history, you're interested in neuroscience, and you're interested in film. You got to make up your mind. Are you going to be an art historian? Are you going to be a neuroscientist? Or are you going to be a filmmaker? And until you make up your mind, you're nothing. And omnology is there so you can say, screw you, Dad. Um, I have these three areas of curiosity. I'm going to follow them for as long as I'm passionate about them. And if you, new curiosities come up and I have the capacity, I'm going to follow those too. And when I hit the age of 40 and all of my friends um, are having midlife crises and the men are buying little red sports cars and picking up blondes and cheating on their wives and the women are planning elaborate divorces to find out who they are, um, all because they have no idea of why they're here on planet Earth, I will be coming back from the desert of my multiple curiosities with my first answers. And while my friends feel they are at the end of their lives, I will know I'm at the beginning of mine. That's omnology. And so we're trying to establish a course in that. And we're covering uh, basically about 10 to 12 great omnologists in history, um, starting with Bethesda. Um, 
and including people like Confucius and a whole bunch of others. Um, well, in doing this, I insisted that two omnologists be on our list. And one is a guy named Alexander von Humboldt, and the other is a guy named Herbert Spencer. Now, Alexander von Humboldt was so famous in the early 1800s that uh, roughly 400 geographic locations are named after him, streets, streams, um, sub Suburb, suburbs, all kinds of things, um, and that 300 species of animals and birds, I mean, animals and plants, are named after him. Um, and yet, when you mention him to your ordinary American, they don't, they've never heard of him. They have no idea of who he is. The other one is Herbert Spencer. Herbert Spencer was considered the greatest philosopher of the 19th century. And if you ask most people who Herbert Spencer is, they do not have a clue. And if you look up the articles in Wikipedia and stuff like that, they are radically biased against, guess who? Herbert Spencer. So they're not giving you a picture of why he was such a big deal. These guys were big deals because they were trying to combine all the sciences. Um, but, uh, Alexander von Humboldt went on a five-year trip to South America exploring and he carried uh, 60 instruments with him. And every quarter mile or so, he would stop and take samples and measurements. And uh, he would take um, specimens of the local plants or the animals, if he could. And he did this even climbing what was regarded as the highest mountain in the world. Look, this guy was dressed for walking in the countryside in England. and. South America has vicious forests with vicious swamps um, and his shoes would be sucked off and his clothes would be inadequate. And he and his traveling companion would be so insect bitten that his traveling companion would just have to stay in a tent for three weeks to get better and not continue traveling with von Humboldt. Yet von Humboldt chose to climb what was thought to be the highest mountain in the world it was in the Andes which means he was going to go to a height where no human, at least no European human, had ever gone before. No one even knew what the physiological consequences would be. And he had his local um, servants who normally carried his 60 pieces of measuring equipment, you know, measuring the temperature, measuring the barometric pressure, all kinds of things like that. And they said, no, what you're planning is certain death. We will not so he carried 40 of his instruments with him, doing his methodical sampling um, and note-taking and measuring all the way up to within a thousand feet of the peak of the mountain, higher than any European had ever gone before, and then came back. Um, and von Humboldt's goal was to meld all of the sciences into one big picture. And he now has a biographer. There is one book about Alexander von Humboldt now, and it's called The Invention of Nature, because the author contends that Alexander von Humboldt was the one who saw nature as one giant interconnected web. And why was he able to see this? Because he was an ophthalmologist, because he used every science, every math that he could find and understand to understand every aspect um, of this globe that he possibly could. And he put his life at risk um, many times in order to do it. So, and he was such an influential role model that there were about 20 or 30 years later, um, there, there was a kid in England who wasn't sure what he wanted to do for a living. And his father sent him off to, I forget where, Cambridge or something like that, and to be a, a minister because his father thought this kid could has to end up somewhere to make a living. Um, so we'll send him off to be a minister. That's a solid living. Otherwise, we'll send him off to be a doctor because his grandfather was a doctor. I'm a doctor. So he should be a doctor. Um, so he got out, this this kid got out of school. And instead of going directly into the ministry or directly into doctoring, um, he got himself a berth, a, a sailing ship 
that was going on a mission of exploration, a five-year mission of exploration around, guess what? South America. And guess whose seven volumes of travel memoirs, travel memoirs, which are also scientific memoirs, he carried with him on this journey. Alexander von Humboldt's The Voyage of the Beagle has its basis in, in. a man who is considered the greatest scientific omnimath um, ever, um, Alexander von Humboldt. And, and Herbert Spencer, um, Herbert Spencer, before Darwin ever wrote his first book on evolution, Darwin, by the way, only used the word evolution in his, his first book on the origin of the species six times. By then, Herbert Spencer had used the word 60 times. By then, Herbert Spencer coined the phrase theory of evolution. Um, after Darwin published his origin of the species, Darwin changed, it changed um, survival of the fit, which was Darwin's phrase, to survival of the fittest. Whose do we use today? Um, Herbert Spencer's. And Herbert Spencer set out to establish what he called a synthetic philosophy a philosophy that included all of the sciences in an evolutionary picture, in a picture of a universe that evolves constantly toward progress. Progress is a big word um, in his view of the world. And certainly everything we've been discussing about stretching out your genome mm -hmm. and having sex and being here, even though the odds against your being here are infinitely large, you by, by probability and statistics, there is no way you are here. Yeah. There's no way I'm talking to a Tommy Kerrigan and there's no way that I, that there's an I to talk. Um, but um, but Darwin took another approach. One of the great omnologists who we're not covering wrote from approximately um, 1790 to 1800, about the time that Alexander von Humboldt was just getting started. And Alexander von Humboldt came from a, a little German microculture called the Romantics. And, um, and the Romantics goal, these people did scientific experiments and they wrote poetry and plays. And their goal was to do science in poetry. And guess who pulled it off in three out of four of his books? Wrote those books in rhyming couplets. Erasmus Darwin, Charles Darwin's grandfather who was revered for this accomplishment. Today, nobody remembers him. So of all these omnologists that we're talking about, Erasmus Darwin, Alexander von Humboldt, um, Charles Darwin, and Herbert Spencer, how many are known today? Only one, three have been erased from the pages of scientific history. So you know that in one of my books, it's either global brain or, or the Lucifer principle. Global brain is about subcultures. Mm -hmm. That's what I set out to cover. And there's one chapter that shows how science is a competition between subcultures. And the subculture that wins wipes the subculture that loses out of the record mm -hmm. um, or humiliates it into non-existence. It takes over all of the journals. It will not accept articles from the subculture that it has just banished. And thus it throws those who follow the hypotheses of the rival subculture, because each subculture represents a hypothesis. Um, it throws those who choose to follow that hypothesis into an untenable track because they cannot get tenure. They can't feed their kids and bring home money for their wives. They no longer have career security in the academic establishment. This is the kind of vicious stuff that deep sixes people, that erases people, like Alexander von Humboldt, um, uh, Herbert Spencer, and Erasmus Darwin. So I wanna know who done it. I wanna know who killed um, omnology in the 19th century, because those are our forefathers as omnologists. And those are the guys we need to bring back to the public. And why? Is it as why do we need? No, no, why no. And, and no, no. Why did they kill them? Is, yes. Why is it, did they kill them? Is, off? It, now, is it simple ego? Is it fuck them? They're trying no, to get in on my. Or is it a? Here's what I. 
here's what I think it is. And so far, all the evidence I've been able to compile, including the 10,000 words I just wrote, indicate that this is correct. Um, in roughly 350 BC, um, a guy named Aristotle, um, in his lectures, laid out in what today is two pages, his program for the future of science. And his program was based on if you break things down to their tiniest elements, their smallest elements, today we call those smallest elements particles, the parts of parts. Um, so if you break things down to their elements and you understand, and this is a crazy metaphor he was applying, because he also said in these two pages, metaphor is not science, and he was using it. He used something that was used to apply to standards of human behavior, which if you strayed from, you would be punished. And the first of those had been written down in 1700 BC by Hammurabi. They had been carved in stone. And Aristotle, who said metaphor is not legitimate science, had the audacity to apply this metaphor to what he called elements and said, if you find the laws of those elements laws are we talking about lawyers here court cases um between elements or you got to be kidding me at any rate so nonetheless he got away with this and he said if you understand the laws of those elements you understand everything you need to know and that gave birth to a long tradition of reductions people who try to reduce things down to their smallest mm -hmm. elements um, and then until they understand everything. Yeah. Right. So what were these guys, William Thompson and Rudolf Clausius and uh, Ludwig Boltzmann, the guys who were putting entropy on the map? What kind of science were they doing? Holistic science, which tries to look at the big picture, which is what Alexander von Humboldt had been doing and what Erasmus Darwin had been doing, and even what Charles Darwin had been doing. Um, no, they were reducing things to atoms, molecules, and motion. Hmm. And what did they compare the entire universe to? A bar heated, an iron bar heated at one end. Now, I let me ask you a simple, blunt question. Is this brilliance or is this stupidity? Or is it both? Brilliance in its moment, in the same way that we used to think, what was it, the homunculus, where we thought fully formed yes, humans right. with clothes and feet were inside of little cells. So brilliance in its time, stupidity in hindsight, which, so it's kind of, you know, kind of a meta theme here. It depends on where you are in the flow of time looking at it. But outside of this conversation and the work I'm doing in solitary isolation in my bedroom, carving out this book from nothing, it is considered brilliance today. That is why... Um, what's his name? The Italian um, physicist is able to write an entire book about the arrow of time. Oh, oh sorry. Uh, Carlo Rovelli. Yeah. Carlo Rovelli derived from thermodynamics. That is why Sean Carroll, who is considered the greatest expositor of physics today, is able to write a book about the arrow of time. These guys are slavishly following um, William Thompson, Rudolf Clausius and Hermann von Helmholtz who in turn are slavishly following um, Aristotle. Yeah. And now Aristotle's program has turned out to be brilliantly useful, but also stupidly narrow-minded because the whole is a very important thing to study. And you can't, and one of the reasons Darwinism survived is because the reductionists took it over and reduced it to what they called the central dogma, which is, again, narrowing things down or breaking things down to their tiniest parts, genes. Narrowing it down to genes and the mathematics of what's called individual selection. And guess what? That's another stupid math because evolution has not proceeded by individual selection alone. Opposites are joined at the hip. You know that old Bloomism. Mm -hmm. Science has proceeded through a conjunction of individual selection and group selection. 
but the the um, <clears throat> Darwin was one of the fathers of group selection. But that aspect of his writing was also erased from the history of science. And instead, Darwin was turned into genes and um, what a, and, and individual selection and the math of individual selection, period. Just like heat was turned into the motion of atoms and molecules. Um, and it is a way to do science with putting out one of your eyes. So we are trying to revive holism, um, which is extremely important because the Tommy Kerrigan, which of your hundred trillion cells am I talking to right now? Yeah. Yeah. No individual cell at all. I'm talking to this hole that emerges when there is a Tommy Kerrigan and it is a hole, even though you have many selves inside of you, a Tommy Kerrigan is a hole. And without understanding the rules of the whole, not just the parts, I understand basically nothing. Yeah. And that's, <clears throat> I think that's why I love global brain so much is because for every system you understand, you have to also realize that you're understanding the cells and not necessarily. So, so like you and I were talking, I'm talking, I am Tommy and I'm talking to Howard, but there's a bunch of cells that don't know either of us exist yet. They are, they are vital to us. So then, whatever we are understanding right now, we think we're understanding, you know, oh, earth and atoms and parakeets and, you know, thunderstorms. And well, what are these, the cells of what is, what is happening? What is, is our entire solar system talking to another solar system? And they're like, yeah, I imagine I probably have planets that have no idea what I am. Is there, is there a Howard galaxy and a Tommy galaxy chatting right now <laughs> going, yeah, there's probably a bunch of people that think they know what we, and then on and on and on forever. Well, it's it's time to start studying the holes. We don't have a vocabulary for it. Mm -hmm. We don't have the tools for it right now. Um, we don't know how we would do it, but I suspect that um, computer simulations mm -hmm. would play a major part. Um, after all, look what computers are able to simulate. Computers are able to simulate a hurricane, yeah. weather patterns. Now, look at a weather pattern from any satellite you choose, and what will you see? These gigantic spirals. Yeah. What are those spirals composed of? They're composed of molecules of water. Yeah. And yet they and gazillions of water molecules. And despite that, they have a hole that spreads over fifteen hundred miles. Yeah. Fifteen hundred miles. The the major the, the the most important metaphor that I've run across in science, I ran across when I was probably fourteen years old reading the Scientific American from cover to cover. And it was an explanation of what a wave is. Now imagine you and I are molecules of water in the sea. Mm -hmm. And we bob in a strange way. We circle. We circle from down below, down here, round, up here, and back down again. And we never go further than, depending on the uh, radius or circumference, uh, of the circle. We never go further than three feet or four feet. Mm -hmm. We always pretty much stay in the same place. When we rise to the top of our motion, we form the swell of a wave, the crest of a wave, the peak of a wave. When we circle back down to the bottom, we form the trough of the next wave. Mm -hmm. And when we circle back up again, we form the peak of the next wave. In other words, now imagine Tommy Kerrigan, you're no longer a water molecule, you're a wave. Or let's do it like this. You've taken your girlfriend to Paris for breakfast. Um, you're on the plane on the way back and she doesn't like window seats, so you get the window seat. You're flying across the Atlantic. You look down below you and what do you see? A corduroyed sea, corduroyed by waves. You suddenly realize you can keep your eye on just one wave and watch it maintain its identity as it travels. And you know that if you take your girlfriend um, from the New York airport <clears throat> directly to the coast of Maine, and you stand on one of those rocky promontories that juts out into the sea, you will get to see just how real that wave is mm -hmm. when it smashes against the rocks. And you know that if you slipped, you'd be dead meat. Yeah. It would make hamburger. That is very real. But I got news for you. 
wave is not real. No. The wave is nothing. What do I mean by nothing? Well, it travels, but it, every second, it's a different set of constituents, a different set of circling molecules. It's never the same set of molecules twice. It is no thing. It is not even any particular collection of things. That's why I call it in one of my books, a recruitment strategy, because <laughs> it is this, it, it has its rules and its shape and its way of staying alive without ever being a particular set of things. Um, and yet, yet its own shape and its own laws are very definite. And they're so real that they could, they could turn you into raw meat um, on the coast of Maine, on that rocky promontory. So um, the wave is a mystery. Um, but the whole, this is a whole that insists on maintaining its identity, despite the fact that it's never the same thing twice. How the hell does that happen? That's where the mystery of holes are. This, That's my only major clue to the mystery of holes. Can it be knowable? Is there just is there a finite amount of what we can know before we just have to assume by pattern? No, there's never there's never a finite amount of what we can know. There is always additional knowing. You and I, I may not know it in our lifetimes, but knowledge is a multi generational cultural project, and it's been going on for as long as there have been modern humans, and probably as long as there have been upright primates. So it's been going on for anywhere from 3.5 million to 200,000 years, possibly 300,000 years. I think I think our next episode <clears throat> I think cuz I've this is something I've put some thought into before without knowing what I was really doing, but I think it's pretty pertinent to omnology is how one goes about kind of getting into this and and so i'll tr I'll try to explain it as, as as quickly and succinctly as i can is uh general mattis some people like him some people don't i don't give a shit he's got some great quotes. i find him interesting yeah he's he, what, he's he's a smart guy you don't have to like him i don't i don't really i don't give a fuck he's a, he's right. bright he's an undeniably bright guy and he right. talks he says number one if you haven't read hundreds of history books you are functionally illiterate and number two um, intuition is pattern is subconscious pattern recognition, nothing more, nothing less. So right. I, I love interviewing people from all walks of life. This podcast will never have one category because I have to just keep moving between topics and things that I like and things that I find interesting. And then by surfing all of these things, you, you notice patterns in completely unrelated fields from CIA counterintelligence to molecular biology you find patterns and similarities so then what you have to realize is the more information you bring in the more patterns you can recognize and thus the p more powerful your intuition gets subconscious pattern recognition so then the next the real bottleneck of this comes to well the rate limiting factor is how much information can you take in well you can you can you can just brute force it, like going to the gym, but that only works so well before you burn out. Versus if you find something you love, you'll devour it and the time will fly by and not even feel like it. So the best I conclude can conclude is to constantly be surfing different audiobooks and articles, whatever your heart desires. And if you try to put a box around it and say, no, I got to stick with neuroscience or I got to stick with art history, you're going to burn out and you're going to fucking hate it. But if you can just surf through it and just make it a game and go, I'm going to learn about Prussia and tomorrow I'm going to learn about tire rotation and tomorrow I'm going to learn about, you know, water cooled LED screens. And then the next day I'm going to learn about frog legs and whatever, whatever pulls your heart towards it like a magnet, you're going to digest much more than you ever would if you just did it simply by brute force and it will stick with you more because you learned it because you loved it and as you suck in more shit and more wikipedia articles and books and interviews and movies and blah, 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 and you start to compile this massive information in your mind you will then start to notice patterns the same patterns between setting up sound panels in a studio and you know fucking the what caused world war one and to my so to me it's like 
the best we can do is teach other people how to get into omnology and then the more people that get into it the advancement of it will accelerate so it's like a green beret a green beret goes to a country and they do force amplification they get to the villagers and they teach them how to use guns and how to march in formation and whatever how to do an ambush that's the best thing i can imagine is if you can teach people how to get into the suck up as most inf- suck up as much information as possible and through that you will recognize patterns in different things and that well, one will thing add that, to one omnology. Thing there's a two it's a brilliant summation of omnology i like it thank you um but the primary tool of omnology is the timeline of the universe um when you run across a fact fit it into the timeline hmm. in other words if you've just been told uh that the latest astronomical observations are that stars began to form uh, 700,000 years after the Big Bang. Put that on your timeline. Yeah. Um, if you've just uh, seen a movie and you really liked it, and it's a 19, well, look up the date. Yeah. Um, put it on your timeline. Um, put everything on your timeline. Okay. And because it's an evolutionary timeline, and you will begin to see the relationships between things. Okay. And you will be- begin to see how one thing grows out of another. And you start to see the waves. Right. And the other thing to be re- very aware of, aside from opposites are joined at the hip, which is an important concept, because often the answer is not, uh, should we really be doing reductionism or should we really be doing holism? The answer is both. We should be doing both. Um, and the other very, very useful principle is hierarchy. Um, 380,000 years after the Big Bang. I told you this story before. Um everything that there were particles and they had been bumping carring each other ricocheting off each other at speeds beyond the speeds of two bullets colliding and immediately they'd been colliding with something else mm-hmm. it was a particle bang up um, for three hundred eighty thousand years and then the particles slowed down and spread out slowing down means they were getting cooler um all that bump of car banging was heat um and when they slowed down suddenly these objects the size of the Empire State Building, relatively speaking, discovered they had an inanimate longing. And these little particles, relatively speaking, the size of your fist, discovered they had an inanimate longing. And they discovered that as a, this is the most unlikely pairing in the universe, a thing the size of the, enter, the Empire State Building, pairing with a thing the size of your fist. But their, their longings met perfectly. And they things were electrons the big things were protons and the electrons found the proton of their dreams and began circling it endlessly and what did that create it created mm-hmm. whole new emergent properties a whole new kind of whole you know aristotle said if you understand the laws of a proton and you understand the laws of an electron you understand everything no aristotle you understand the fuck nothing nothing <laughs> Because these things have entirely new properties not predicted from either the proton or the electron. And the new properties are called an atom. And the new properties are called um, hydrogen. Yeah. And yeah. But, but the deal is what else shows up in that first flick of the matter that we know today of the atoms? Hierarchy. Because who determines where we go if. Uh, I'm an electron and you're a proton and you're 1800 times my size. You do. You have all the mass. And I am circling around you. You are not circling around me. That's the first instance of hierarchy. And if you watch the news daily and you think about the competition between the United States, China and Russia right now, it's deciding who will be in the on the who, top in a hierarchy. Yeah. Who's um, driving it? Yeah, exactly. So you will see hierarchy at work under what's called the Thucydides. Thucydides trap, yeah. Yeah, the Thucydides trap, which means that when a nation's economy increases in size dramatically and equals that of those who have been the dominant forces, that new one on the block who has the economic power is going to start fighting to get recognized um, for its new position. And we'll try to go to the very top. 
That's what Germany did in World War One. That's what Germany did again in World War Two. Because Germany, we don't recognize it, Germany became a huge economic power because we focused on the steel industry and making railroad trains. The Germans focused on making electrical generators mm. um, and becoming the one of the two hearts. America and Germany were in competition for the heart of this new industry, plus the electrical industry. And Germany also had an industry we did not, the chemical industry. Mm. So Germany was fighting for overt recognition of its new position, its new weight and heft economically. And that's what's happening between China, Russia, and the United States right now. Russia doesn't have a chance in the long run, but the Ukrainians are suffering horribly for it. Um, I mean, the, the Russians right now want to literally wipe Ukrainian culture and the Ukrainians off the map so they can take over that territory um, as Novorusk or something like that. Novorusk. Um, and but it's the Chinese we really have to watch out for, which we know, because once upon a time in the 1800s, there was a country that only produced 5% of the world's economic output. Um, and then it started installing three things, automated uh, machines to make threads, spinning machines, automated weaving machines, and steam engines to run them. And within roughly 40 years, that country that only produced 5% of the goods of the world produced 25% of the goods of the world and was known as the workplace of the world. And it was England, despite having a tiny population. Um, and today, what's the workshop of the world? China. China. Yeah. So we're trying, I mean, Biden is very wise. He's trying to change that. Um, he's trying to develop domestic supply chains after all we did have all these industries ourselves once upon a time um and but we'll see how i hope he makes out well so um I. I hope i hope that it turns out to be economically viable to make ships in the united states i watched as the chinese took over the solar industry i watched and i agonized um i watched as ronald reagan took solar panels uh, off the roofs of the white house as research dollars dried up for solar research. And as the Chinese, I was in China and I was taken on a tour of a Potemkin village solar factory. It was this huge empty factory and they had an entrance on one side and an exit on the other. And if you walked through, what you saw was a bunch of people working on machines to allegedly make solar panels. Well, it was a little show. It was like a, a show at the World's Fair. Um, it didn't, the factory didn't, wasn't functioning yet. It didn't have its equipment installed. This was just a ruse, but it, it demonstrated China's aspirations and China pumped money into the solar energy. And now China owns the solar panel industry, owns it. And it would like to do that. It wants to do that with the chip industry. It wants to do that with the laptop industry. It wants to do that with everything. And it's never talked about these days, not even in Cajun, which is a publication produced in China under Chinese strict guidelines, or Nikkei Asia, which has the best Asia coverage that I know. Um, they never cover the fact that Xi Jinping said put together a made in China program and that that was supposed to culminate in 2005, which is now a very short time away. And what was it? It was exactly the equivalent of what Joe Biden is being excoriated for by the Chinese in trying to redevelop American supply chains. Hmm. So the Chinese are lying. Of course. Of course. Um, I mean, I have a great respect for what they accomplished under Deng Xiaoping sure. and under Dengism, but not what they're trying to do under Xiism. Yeah, Jinpingism. So we should cut off. We're because I, mean, I, I got to go kept back you to seven, work. I know you do. I've and I've kept you seven minutes past because I can't be trusted. <laughs> Howard, I love talking to you, man. I really do. I wouldn't. I wouldn't well, keep having you on here. It's always a. If you can tell, I sit up. That's always a reminder of like, right. 
all right, you know, you know, it's like it's like the old man playing his son in basketball. You're like, all right, not as limber as I used to be. I'll do, I'll do, a, <laughs> I'll do, a, you know, do a couple days of podcasts, and I'll feel like I'm, you know, I'll feel like I'm running the table, and then I'll have Howard on here talking about quarks and directionalism. I'm like, oh fuck, I forgot Howard's smart. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta, stand, I gotta stand up and like, you know, get it going. Um, well, you do an excellent job. I love you, your summation. Thank you, sir. Um, well, of omnology. Thank you, thank you. I think that would um. Yeah, whatever. I'll I'll send I'll send you an email. We'll set up the next podcast. But uh, yeah, I'd like to continue down this thread. I like this thread. Okay, terrific. So have a wonderful night. You Stay too, healthy, sir. strong, and happy. Yes. Um, may you find the woman of your dreams. Thank you. Uh, and go through that incredibly tortuous through, process. Go through my mitosis and meiotic insanity. Yes. Right. Thank okay. You. So I'll see you the next time. Yes, sir. Guys, please go into the description. Please go grab Howard's book book please go follow him on twitter you can go to his facebook you go to the howard bloom institute you can go, all that stuff is in the description please go support howard and if, if you're going to only choose one I, I would highly recommend global brain i like all of them but if you're going to grab one if you just want to grab one i would say global brain is that's my favorite lucifer principle muhammad whatever you want to do but global brain if you just want to get a taste of it and see if it's worth your time i would recommend that and uh, i think it will be worth your time but howard thank you so much dude love talking to you man it's, it's a pleasure. Thank so you. So have sir. a great night. You too, sir. Thank you so much. Guys, Recording thank stopped. you for watching. Take care, everybody. Peace.